What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. This is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, or if you'd just like to explain to us uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic, well, let's talk. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of the U.S. and Canada, please dial the number 1 and then 205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email. Lead off with uh, one of those in just a moment here. The address ctc at ewtn.com, especially for those of you watching on TV today. That's the best way to get uh, in touch with the program, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer, and um, um, Matt Gabinski is our phone screener. I was thinking Michael, but it's not Michael, it's Matt. Matt Gabinski, our phone screener, and Jeff Burson on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Just ask your question. I'll put that in the uh, comments box. Jeff will see that. He'll send it to us here in the studio. Hopefully we can get your question answered on today's program. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing decent. Thank you. I have an interesting objection here, an email Great. from I Kenneth. love objections. This is a good one. This is from Kenneth who says, You present Catholicism as righteous on every issue and misrepresent the Reformers by leaving out the violations of the Catholic Church that led to the Reformers being relevant. I was raised Catholic and was introduced to Jesus via the Church, but now see the errors of Catholicism and the need for expansion of belief in Jesus. The Catholic Church puts up barriers to Jesus, and the Catholic mold doesn't work for many believers. And again, that's from Kenneth. Catholic mold doesn't work. Okay, taking notes here. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very yeah. much. I really appreciate the question. So let me go through these one by one. To begin with, I, I don't think I've ever suggested that the Catholic Church is, as you put it, righteous on every issue. Uh, now, I am a Catholic, and so I believe that what God has revealed is true. Mm-hmm. And just like, I mean, what if I said to a Protestant, well, you know, you just present the Bible as if if it were just right in everything it said, <laughs> right? Well, that's just the Protestant position. The Protestant position just is that the Bible is the Word of God and the rule of faith. Well, the Catholic's position is that the teaching uh, authority of the Church is the rule of faith. This is how God tells us what he wants us to know, through mm-hmm. sacred tradition, which includes the Bible, as interpreted by the magisterium, that's how you know the content of the faith. So if you accuse me of, lo and behold, being a Catholic, <laughs> I, I plead guilty when the Church <laughs> declares something dogmatically. For example, the Church dogmatically taught the dogma of the Trinity in 325 at the Council of Nicaea. Well, yeah, I think that's right, not because I've independently verified the doctrine of the Trinity, but because I hold that the sacred council is the, the mode of teaching whereby the Church validates this is delivered to us in sacred revelation. Mm-hmm. That's how we know what the truth is. The Church has taught it. But if you exclude those things that are taught dogmatically, those things that are given to us by revelation, uh, Catholics certainly do a lot of things that aren't righteous. 
And that would include popes and bishops and priests, as well as lay people and religious and monks and nuns and everybody else, right? Even in their offices as popes and bishops and priests and monks and nuns. Mm -hmm. They can make decisions about the governance of the church or the affairs of the church that are really stupid. And they've done that many times over 2,000 years, and I've never claimed the contrary. Um, Now, you also made the statement that I, personally, that I misrepresent the Reformers by omitting the abuses that made the Reformation relevant. Well, I certainly don't want to misrepresent the Reformers, and I, I spent Oh, a good you know ten plus years of my professional life doing nothing but studying the reformers at, you know at the PhD level so that I would get the reformers right yeah and it was precisely as a result of trying to get the reformers right and not represent them that I became Catholic right because what I found is that my Protestant tradition had misrepresented the reformers on any number of issues uh, and the one that I think far and above is the most important to, to understand. It's just, why was there a Reformation? I mean, you, you make it sound like it's just a foregone conclusion that the Reformers were responding to legitimate abuses and that therefore the Reformation was necessary. Oddly enough, when you read the Reformers, that's that's not exactly how they present it, right? They don't present the Reform as a, as a response to ecclesiastical abuses, uh, Luther himself said, look, this abuses, you know, corruption, that sort of thing, that, that's really not what it's all about. Not even uh, doctrines like the purgatory, the papacy, and indulgences. In, in 1525, when Luther wrote Bondage of the Will, uh, ref- arguing with Erasmus of Rotterdam, Luther said, I mean, I quote, <clears throat> the papacy, purgatory, and indulgences, and a number of topics like this may more fitly be called trifles than matters of debate. Mm. Right? Uh, for Luther, the core issue <clears throat> was not about ecclesiastical abuses. It wasn't even about the doctrine of the papacy. It was about the question of the bondage of the will. That's why he wrote a book called Bondage of the Will. D- can human beings act freely, and uh, and in doing so, can they contribute to their own salvation? Can they be participants? Can they be cooperators with God in the work of salvation? And Luther said, absolutely not. Salvation is entirely a work uh, of that from God's unilateral initiative. Humanity has no instrumental p- part to play other than passive receptivity through faith, and to teach otherwise is the, the worst possible heresy. That was Luther's view, justification by faith alone. And, uh, and represented that as the teaching of St. Paul. Well, you know, when I dug into the matter myself personally, mm-hmm. I realized that, first of all, Luther was the first person in history to ever teach that doctrine. Uh, and that would include St. Paul. St. Paul didn't teach that doctrine either. And Oops. the best, even in Protestant modern biblical scholarship, would agree that Luther got Paul wrong. So, uh, you know, I, I, um, I've i tried to make that case many, many times over the years, but I just I don't think I've misrepresented Luther by leaving out ecclesiastical abuse. I talk about ecclesiastical abuse all the time. Sure. All right? We got tons of it. Right? That's not a sufficient reason to leave the church that Christ founded. Um, the Catholic Church puts up barriers to Jesus. I don't know, Tom, we're about to go to a break. Maybe we should take that on the other side of the break. What do you think? I think that's a real good idea. So, uh, Kenneth, uh, if you are listening, sit tight. We're going to continue this on the other side of the break. We're also going to go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. In a moment, we'll be talking with Mary in California, uh, also Eileen in Michigan. A couple of lines open for you as well at 8 833-288-EWTN. It is called to communion here on EWTN with Dr. David Anders. Do stay with us.
It's called a communion here on EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, we would love to talk with you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. A couple of lines are open for you right now. We began the program today with an email from Kenneth, who had uh, sort of a little litany of things uh, that is keeping him from becoming a Catholic. And the one that we didn't get to was the very last one that Kenneth posed. He says... The Catholic Church puts up barriers to Jesus, and the Catholic mold doesn't work for many believers. Yeah, thank you. So you may be surprised that I respond this way, but I'm actually going to agree with you, but with some qualifications. Okay. Yes, Catholics can put barriers between souls and Jesus. Now, that's not true just of Catholics, right? So let me give you an illustration. When I was growing up in the Presbyterian Church— I went to a school that routinely beat children. And I, being a precocious and somewhat obnoxious kid, was often the recipient of that. And it wasn't a discipline that was conducted with love, but Mm. oftentimes with vengeance and unevenly, without equity. And so I and many other people developed a kind of a bitterness against the school and the administration because of unfair treatment. And sometimes I would say, like, even, you know, bordering on abusive at times. And... um, uh, you better believe that that alienated a lot of people from Jesus. Not me, actually. I, I didn't walk away from Christ because of that, but there were people who did. I knew folks who walked away from the Presbyterian Church because of the way they were mistreated uh, at the school, right? So, um, and, and that kind of thing happens in all sorts of organizations. A bad seed comes in and de- deforms the message, deforms the mission of the institution mm-hmm. by by bringing whatever they bring to it. Can Catholics do that? Absolutely, they can. And and if you attend to the teaching of Pope Francis, one of the things that he's been really intent on since his election to the papacy in 2013 was to remove uh, barriers that uh, Catholic apostolates and parishes might put up between the soul and Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, on the other hand, if what you mean is that the that the Catholic Church interposes things like sacraments and doctrines or saints— and that that's the barrier, then I would argue with you. Then I would say, no, I don't agree with you, because those things are not barriers, they're means. Everyone who comes to Christ comes to Christ through some form of relationship. Some kind of instrumental means has been used, whether you're a Protestant or a Catholic or whatever. Uh, We don't have an unmediated contact with, with, uh, with Christ. As much as you may think that you do, you can't even ask Christ to speak to your heart or to come dwell in your life unless someone's told you about him. And St. Paul says, how shall they hear unless somebody preaches? Because right. faith comes through hearing. You, you've got some kind of mediated contact. And, and what experience uh, shows us is that it's not enough just to have the, uh, the cognitive content delivered into your ears. It has to be delivered in a context that makes it credible and believable, usually instantiated in the form of a life well-lived. A- almost mm. all of us have got some mentor person in our family or our environment, or our upbringing, or our school, or whatever, that we that we respect. And we say, I, I'd like to be like that person. Yeah. I'd like to live the faith the way they lived it. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it stick, yeah. right? Yeah. And so that's mediated content. Now, the, the Catholic position is that there are, some of those those uh, mediations are happenstance, as, as it were. Some were deliberately instituted by Christ to be the ordinary means of coming into relationship with him. And so the sacraments, for example, are are ritual protestations, ritual demonstrations of the faith that saves us. That's the way St. Thomas describes them. And so not only do I get it coming into my ears, but I get it coming into my eyes and my nose and all my senses, and it habituates 
the soul to imitation and assimilation of the person of Jesus. If they're taken properly, they can be tremendous means to growth and holiness. So, so also with the saints. The saints are living exemplars of what intimacy with Christ looks like. They make the, the, the faith uh, livable and credible to us as we see, okay, sanctity is possible in my state of life, even mm-hmm. for lawyers. Look at Thomas More. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's, and they can be for many people a, a path to holiness and salvation should be. That's the way God set it up. Um, you would say some people, the Catholic mold doesn't fit for some people. Well, I, I would agree with you that many people may have had an experience of the Catholic faith growing up, for example, in their parish, where something about the presentation of the faith doesn't click with them, and so they walk away. That's why this show exists, and and shows like it, uh, is so that, okay, so maybe something about the way you uh, assimilated the faith in childhood didn't fit with you. There are other models of Catholic life that you may not have considered. Yeah. And I mean, that's that was true for me. I mean, my only engagement with Catholicism for many years was the stereotype of the superstitious Catholic who thinks he can crawl to heaven on his own rosary beads, right? That was the way I viewed Catholics. Uh, Slavish obedience to the Pope and unthinking devotion to the saints. Uh, Then I met Catholics that completely upended that that stereotype and that expectation and began began to find men and women of exceeding holiness and doctrines of transcendent power, something I didn't know before. So open your mind to the possibility that the Catholic Church may have means of grace and salvation you haven't considered. Kenneth, we hope that is helpful for you. Thank you so much for your very thoughtful email. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Mary in California listening on the EWTN app. Hello, Mary. What's on your mind today? Well, I wanted to call about my daughter who is going to, yes, told me that, and she's got the engagement ring. She's going to elope with a Hindu and an active Hindu who is active in his faith. And she's a lapsed Catholic. Now, my dilemma is that she's hoping to elope, come back, and have a reception. But I'm usually the one that puts on all the parties for our family. And so I don't know what to do. I feel like if I put on a big reception for her, uh, she's going to think, I mean, it's like saying it's okay for what she's done. And But I... Uh, but I don't want to push, oh my gosh, she would feel so hurt if I, you know, didn't do anything and just said, no, because you, you eloped with a Hindu. He's a wonderful man. I can't say this man is a wonderful man. He treats her wonderfully. I, I don't know what to do. That's why I'm calling. Oh, wow. Yeah, thanks. Tough decisions, these. I really appreciate the call. So a couple considerations. First of all, a Catholic can can be validly ma- uh, married to a practicing Hindu. That is possible. A mixed marriage like that is possible in, in canon law and Catholic practice. And so there's nothing absolutely about this that would invalidate the possibility of her having a valid and a very good marriage. Now, the problem from the Catholic Church's point of view isn't simply that she's marrying a Hindu, which she can do if she has permission, a dispensation from uh, for a disparity of cult. She can get permission from the bishop to do that. That's not the problem. The problem is the elopement, um, because a Catholic is under normal circumstances bound by canon law to marry in a church uh, with a Catholic, with a minister of the Catholic Church, a priest or deacon. Mm -hmm. Again, there are exceptions. One can ask for a dispensation from canonical form and have a valid marriage, Uh, but uh, there has to be for a just cause, a proportionate reason. 
So um, the, the, the fellow sounds like a fine individual, and I mean, I'd probably be proud to have him as a son-in-law. And I've, I've certainly known wonderful Hindu people that have done my family and me personally a, a tremendous amount of good. I got nothing against Hinduism per se, uh, or at least nothing against Hindu people, I'll put it that way. I have nothing against Hindu people and want them to obey their consciences and live according to the rules of justice and charity, and many of them do that. And my hat's off to them. Um, uh, but the, the canonical status of the marriage, that's an issue. So, you know, one question is, uh, I'm sure you've considered this, but, you know, is it possible that you could have a conversation with your daughter and just say, look, here's how I, here's where I'm standing. I love this guy. I think he's fantastic. I think you're going to have a wonderful life together. Um, the, the manner of your marriage, right, the elopement, that, that's really upsetting me because, look, I know you're a lapsed Catholic and you may not care about the church, but, like, for me, it's a big deal that you have a wedding that's canonically valid. If you don't want to have a big to-do and a big guest list, you could still have a, a canonically valid marriage simply by repeating your vows in front of a Catholic priest or deacon. It doesn't have to be a big show. It could be just the two of you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I myself, I'm speaking of me, David Anders, when my marriage was convalidated in the Catholic Church, you know, I, was, I had an invalid marriage, I got it convalidated, mm-hmm. uh, I think the only witnesses were the priest, my wife, myself, uh, our children, and maybe like two friends. Right, that was it. I mean, it wasn't a big deal, and we—I think we scheduled it maybe like a week out. Uh, now, you know, they, they'd probably have to meet with the priest ahead of time and have some sort of marriage preparation, but that's a possibility to raise that question. Uh, you know, you could say, "Look, if if you, because of that question, my conscience is troubled, and uh, I love you to death, and I love your soon-to-be." You know, as it were, husband, mm-hmm. I want to have a great relationship with y'all, but, um, you know, I, I feel very uneasy in conscience about this thing, and can you, res- I'm, I'll respect you if you respect me. Can you respect my conscience in this, that mm-hmm. I don't want to be mm-hmm. material or formally involved in the, 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 the nuptials if I don't, if I'm not, if I don't think that's right. It doesn't mean I don't love you, doesn't mean I don't love him, mm-hmm. but you're asking me to violate my conscience. I, I'm not asking you to violate your conscience, don't ask me to violate mine. Um, now, there's another possibility, which is that you could, uh, you could say, um, look, I think this is not the way this ought to go down. I, I, w- I wouldn't mind you getting married. This is not how I want it to go down. Um, I've stated my point of view. If I decide to host a reception after the fact, mm-hmm. I want you to understand that's because I love you and I care about you, not because, I th- not because I'm okay with this. Right, so that you're not mm-hmm. misunderstood as like totally endorsing, right. and it's going to be tricky because you have to you have to mm-hmm. distinguish your love for the people involved, and your desire to be in relationship with them mm-hmm. on the one hand, from from the form of the union on the other, and so I love you guys. I want y'all to be together. I'm happy for you to be together. I'm troubled about the form this is taking when it's going down. Can you understand and respect my conscience? A couple of different possibilities for you there, Mary, and thank you so much for your call. We hope that all that goes well for for you and for your daughter as well. Hey, that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Call to communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Let's go now to Bill, a first-time caller from Atlanta, listening today on The Quest. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, real quick, and I'll get off the phone. Uh, old argument between the evangelical slash Protestant faith works. Um, the story of Noah is a story of, of course, that is you know a foreshadowing of many things, but the builder of the ark 
with Noah. Noah doesn't even have any clue what to do without God. He obeys God, and he and then he becomes a fellow worker with the Lord in building the uh, the physical structure that is going to deliver not only him but his family and the, the created things. Now, this may be myth, story, doesn't matter. The truth is there. We must be fellow workers with God. You know, we're called to get up and, you know, love God with all your mind, soul. My, uh, come on, help me out here. Uh, Heart, mind, and soul. Yeah. And strength. Okay. Which means the, the body. The body means get out of bed, get out there, do. Mm-hmm. Engage yourself, your whole body, into being a fellow worker with Christ. Without that, there is no ark. The ark is not there. It's all abstract. It's all theology, but there's no ark. And which, at the age of 50, I, had, I came to the realization I had always been a Catholic. I was born in the evangelical Protestant world. I heard the stories, the arguments a million times. And then you wake up, you go, well, Catholics are right on this. Anyway, for 16 years, I have been receiving communion in the Catholic Church. Because what else is there to do, really? You know, that's kind of what we have. Yeah, well, thanks. I I really appreciate the call. And I think you're, you're... Uh, analogy from the life of Noah is very apt. I, I think one could legitimately draw that that inference from the story of Noah, that, and for Abraham too, actually. Abraham's faith, Abraham's faith that saved him mm-hmm. was the obedient faith. When God said, get up and leave Ur of the Chaldeans and head over to the land I'm going to show you, uh, Abraham, you know, packed up and off he went. That mm-hmm. that was the nature of the faith that saved. And the, the real dispute between Protestants and Catholics is a little bit more subtle than just do you have good works or not? Because, uh, or, or is it faith? Uh, this no Catholic denies that you have to have faith to be saved, and no Protestant denies that you need good works. The real debate is about how those things work together and the, and the way in which God finds us to be righteous. So the typical Protestant view is that God considers us righteous for Christ's sake. So whether or not you work, God says, okay, you're, you're acquitted because Jesus died for you. And the the Catholic position is that, yes, God acquits us and counts us righteous, but he does so because through faith he transforms our life. He makes us into an Abraham or a Noah. He changes our character so that he can say in truth, well done, good and faithful servant, Mm -hmm. come enter the joy of your master. So both believe in faith, both believe in works, both believe in grace. But for the Protestant, that that faith and grace is there just to to secure uh, our acquittal before God. For the Catholic, it's there to transform our character and make us into holy, righteous people. All right. And, uh, Bill, is that helpful for you? Yes, it is very much. And real quick, it is it is very sobering if you really think about your role in this. It's very sobering when you realize that you will have a part in this. Well, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and a kind of passivity about the moral life of the spiritual life where I say, and look, Catholics can do this too. Like, there's a Catholic form of this passivity where, where I can say, hey, you know, God's grace is going to do this stuff in me. It's going to make me righteous. Uh, maybe not the way the Protestants think, but I'm going to rely on God's grace. And I can do that in a way that, um, that deflects me from the real moral battle that I have to wage every day uh, to, to do my dead-level best, to keep the law of God and live in accord with his purposes and to genuinely cooperate. So whether you're Protestant or Catholic, 
we got to get about the business of cooperating. Absolutely. Bill, thanks so much for your call. Glad that you're listening there in Atlanta on our great EWTN station, The Quest, uh, serving millions of folks uh, in that area with uh, solid Catholic programming. In a moment, we're going to get to uh, Andrea in Crofton, Maryland, also Tanner in Ohio. Lillian is in Arizona. She's got a great question. And a couple of lines are open for you right now at 833 833- 288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. 833-288-3986. If you're watching on television today, you'll want to send your email to um, ctc at EWTN.com. Back in a moment with lots more Call to Communion here on EWTN. Stay with us. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Very busy phone lines today. Let's get right back to it. Here is Andrea in Crofton, Maryland, watching on EWTN television today. Andrea, what's on your mind? I thank thank you first of all for taking my call. Um, I wanted to ask: Is there a book, or would you consider writing a book that would explain all of the names of the individuals in the Eucharistic prayer? The Linus Cletus. Clement Sixtus Chrysogenes, mm-hmm. which throws me every time I hear it. But you get what I'm saying. Who, as a Catholic, who are these people? I, I don't know, and I don't know where to find out and read about them. Okay. Because they had to be amazing to be in the Eucharistic prayer. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, you know, the Church has, in the, in the Latin right now, has four Eucharistic prayers that priests can pick from, but the oldest and most traditional is called the Canon of the Mass, and that's number one. And that's where you get this litany of all these saints. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of those characters were popes, uh, some of them were martyrs, uh, some of them were the virgin martyrs of antiquity, uh, but, uh, but they're different celebrated characters from the early centuries. Now, in terms of a resource, one that comes to my mind, uh, the, the National Catholic Register, which is uh, the sort of the print arm of uh, EWTN's mm-hmm. uh, family of media resources, has an article from a few years back that's available online simply called, Who Are All Those Saints in the Roman Canon? Ah. National Catholic Register. And it goes through and names them all and defines them for you. Very good. Uh, check that out there. It's uh, ncregister.com. Andrea, thanks for your call. Uh, Andrea also mentioned the possibility of maybe you writing a book about all that. Writing books, not likely to write one on the saints of the Roman canon. Just on our way to the studio today, uh, I had asked you about your weekend, and, and you said it was just like cram-packed, no way you could do anything else, and that, and and then offering up, well, that's why I don't have another book coming out. <laughs> right, exactly. This is uh, life here in the 21st century, I suppose. Thanks so much for, uh, for your call, Andrea. Let's go to Tanner now in Ericsville, Ohio. Hope I got that right. Uh, watching it on podcasting today. Tanner, what's on your mind? Hello, Dr. Anders. Uh, I, have a, I have a question I've wondered for a while. I know it's difficult to know anything about Jesus' early life. Uh, as I understand it, uh, Hebrew boys would go to school for a time, and then the best of the best would stay in school, and the not-so-best-of-the-best would learn their father's trade. They'd go a little bit longer. Best-of-the-best would go on to be rabbis, and the not-so-best-of-the-best would go to learn their father's trade. So my question is, why did Jesus learn his father's trade? Why did he? Yeah, um, would he not have been the best-of-the-best? 
it's just something I've wondered. Yeah, sure. I appreciate the question. So, uh, first of all, what we know about the life of Christ outside the canonical scriptures is fairly limited, obviously. Um, there are scholars, I'm not one of them, but there are scholars who have committed their lives to what's called uh, historical Jesus or life of Jesus research. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's extensive literature on the question, as I'm sure you're aware, that detail all these socioeconomic cultural contexts in which the Son of God grew up. And uh, and I would, honestly, if I were going to research this in any greater depth, I would just avail myself of that literature. Um, now, I, I think we can we can draw some theological conclusions. First of all, well, not just theological. First of all, it's obvious that Christ did know the Hebrew Scriptures quite well. He, he quotes from them frequently uh, and is very adept at doing so in dialogue with the Pharisees. So he was, he was well-formed in terms of his religious environment. Um, why he would learn a manual trade, uh, well, I, that that is completely consistent with his ethos, in my judgment. I mean, Christ, as you know, was not born— um, in the uh, you know Hasmonean royal line in Jerusalem and a, a, and a, an aristocrat among first mm. century Judeans, he mm-hmm. was born in a poor city. That when the Pharisees and the members of the council in Jerusalem first heard of, they said, "Huh? Can anything ever? Can anything good ever come out of Nazareth? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a backwater." And it was because Christ had no beauty or majesty that we should be attracted to him. That's the language of the prophet Isaiah. So he was born into menial circumstances, doing, uh, you know, fairly quotidian work and didn't have an elevated social position, um, and rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and not a war elephant. You know, that was his, his whole persona. His, his, uh, his presentation was of one who entered into the humble form of life. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, Philippians 2 says that our attitude should be like Christ, who, though being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant. And if he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, I don't think we should be surprised that he didn't necessarily have to go for the Harvard PhD of his day. Yeah. Hey, Tanner, thank you so much uh, for your question. Don't think that one has ever come up on this program. That was a good one. It was, for sure. Appreciate your call. Let's go now to Lillian in Arizona watching on EWTN television today. Hello, Lillian. What's on your mind today? Well, (laughs) I I was just wondering, uh, years ago, growing up, we were never allowed to eat meat on Friday. And I'm just wondering, is, is it still the same? Has it been changed? Or is it still the same? I called uh, Archdiocese, and whoever answered the phone said that if we do uh, eat late on Friday, we'll we, we do another sacrifice. You know, I guess like a rosary or something in return. Do you know what the teaching is on that? Yes, now? I do. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate the question. Mm-hmm. So the Code of Canon Law says that Fridays throughout the year are penitential days, but it leaves it up to the local Episcopal Conference to determine the appropriate celebration of that, of that discipline. And the, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops uh, has stated that it is not necessary for all Catholics to abstain from meat on Friday. That's not required. Uh, but it is necessary that they, they perform some penitential activity, that they have something about their life that is an acknowledgment mm-hmm. of the, the Lord's crucifixion, which took place on Friday. Some folks I know, uh, including my wife and I, we are choosing, choosing to abstain from meat on Fridays. It's an easy thing to remember. Nobody is going to uh, hurt their health, in my judgment. Well, I won't say nobody, but because I won't know everybody. <laughs> Few people will hurt their health 
by abstaining from meat on Fridays. Few, very few. Absolutely. Um, Up to you then, Lily, and whatever that uh, turns out to be. Thank you so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Claire now in Seattle, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hello, Claire. What's on your mind today? Good morning. Um, I would like to receive communion. I would like to go to confession, but I'm very angry because of a situation with my ex-husband's family. Uh, And I just had an answer on your screening that I will not be considered in the eyes of the Lord or in the eyes of my faith or in the eyes of my church a divorced Catholic. So legally, I am a Catholic and I am divorced in the state of Washington, no fault. My question to you is, um, I was should I bother, excuse me, not bother, should I approach my local priest before I contact the chancery about what the conditions are to consider bringing in a 100-year-old, which is what age my husband, to be interviewed to see what possible motivation uh, to marrying me, was there any pediment so that I can have this marriage annulled since there's nothing left, since I don't see him, I don't hear from him, I can't ever approach him. And meanwhile, I have tremendous hatred for not him, I've forgiven him, but his family. So that's the big package. Okay, deal. yeah, thank you so much, and I'm so sorry for your really palpable suffering. Let me ask you a question, because I wasn't quite sure on all the details. So you, you were married, and then you were divorced. Now, was that, that initial marriage, I take, I take it that marriage was in the Catholic Church? We, we were married in 99, so 24 and a half years. We were married with the dispensation of the Archdiocese of Seattle, the bishop, for a mixed marriage between an Episcopalian, I call it Catholic light, jokingly, and Catholic in front of a priest, Catholic, and a female Episcopal priest in a mis- in Episcopal church. And we were married for all those years. And his children, who were from the first marriage, he was a widower of 15 years when we married. It was a valid spiritual marriage. It was a valid, I thought, of definitely legal license in the state of Washington. Okay. And we lived together for 19 years. Okay, so it sounds like you, you, you got the dispensation from the bishop, so you met the requirements for canonical validity. So we're going to presume the validity of the marriage for now. Have you subsequently remarried? No, and don't have any intention to. I'm almost 74 and in ill health. Well, then, then, there's, then there'd be no barrier to you coming back to full communion in the Catholic Church. I don't see the need to obtain an annulment. I mean, you only need to obtain an annulment if you want to marry again, because, you know, you can't be married to two people at the same time, so they got to figure out well, who you're actually validly married to. Mm-hmm. So here, all you have to do is uh, you just go to confession and confess whatever sins you've committed since your last confession, and you'll be absolved. And I mean, you you want to s- explain what your state of life is, yeah. right? Um, but uh, uh, but it, you know this. Like I'm just, I'm not making any accusations. I'm just going to speak hypothetically. So let's say there might have been some fault on your part in the breaking up of the marriage. I'm not saying there was. Let's say, for example, that uh, you know you abandoned him without cause. Right? It doesn't sound like that, but I'm just thinking hypothetical situations. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know that that that's a sin you know, to abandon your spouse, Um, and that's something you can repent for, but when there's no possibility of reconciliation, you're not going to be obligated to get back together. Now, sounds like to me that's not the situation at all. More likely he abandoned you, um, or there was a breakdown in the marriage, made it impossible for you to live together. You get a civil divorce because you need to separate your affairs. That's not necessarily sinful. There may not be anything to confess there. Um, But whatever the case is, whatever sin or lack of sin there may be, you just go to confession, and as long as your intent is not to marry again, so you're not going to be cohabitating with somebody that you're not 
you know, validly married to, mm-hmm. there, should, there should be no impediment to, to come into communion. Lots of divorced and not remarried Catholics are in joyful, full communion with the Church. There you go, Claire. Thank you so much uh, for your call. Glad that you're listening to us today on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Call to communion here on EWTN. We bring you something wonderful each and every uh, Monday through Friday morning, and that is the Chaplet of Divine Mercy at 5 a.m. Eastern. You can join Catholics around the world as we recall in prayer the devotion of St. Faustina to our Lord. Again, that's Monday through Friday, 5 a.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to uh, Martha in Arizona. Arizona, listening on her Roku device. Martha, what's on your mind today? Dr. Anders, um, I, I've talked to you before. Um, I have a brother-in-law who's left the church. He and his wife are seven-day Adventists. They're wonderful people. I love them immensely. They've really helped me get through uh, my husband passing a year and a half ago. And we uh, don't necessarily talk about religion much, but um, they sent me this book. I told them it was okay to send it to me. I'm going to read it. It said, um, The Great Controversy Between Christ and Satan. Of course, it was written by that Ellen White. I'm going to read it because it's important to them, but what I want to know is, and I plan on praying before and during I'm reading this, and they want me to have my Bible next to me and everything, but what can I read afterwards? After I read all this, what can I read afterwards to counteract what this book is saying? You know, to give me what the Catholic is. Sure, sure. Yeah, I really appreciate the question. So um, there is a Catholic apostolate, the partner of EWTN, called Catholic Answers. You may be familiar with Catholic Answers. They're on every afternoon. Uh, uh, for two hours, I think, to mm-hmm. call-in show. Mm-hmm. Uh, their their website, catholic.com, has a number of really good tracts on all the different religious movements that Catholics have to interact with. And so they have really good literature on Seventh-day Adventism from a Catholic point of view. And so that's that's really where I would start. I'd go to Catholic Answers yeah. and, uh, and look up Seventh-day Adventism and then just read the various articles and podcasts and so forth that they've produced on that topic. It'd just be an excellent resource for you. Um, now, you know, Ellen White's position was, uh, you know, she considered herself to be a prophetess. And like many reformers of the 19th century Americas, um, she thought that everybody before her had gotten it wrong, more or less. And uh, so she was here to set the record straight. There, there was a lot of that going on in the mm. 19th century. So yeah. Ellen White was one exemplar of that uh, activity. Um, uh, so was Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. So was Alexander Campbell, the founder of the so-called Christian Church. Uh, what they all had in common was this idea that uh, that there'd been some sort of great apostasy, that the faith had been lost, and you know, finally God has raised up the, you know, this righteous remnant to set the record straight. The problem was he just kept raising up righteous remnants every five <laughs> minutes. None of them agreed with one another. Yeah. Right? And the, the underlying problem with all of it, of course, is this idea, uh, the sort of standard Protestant idea that the Bible is the rule of faith, that the way you know the Christian faith is through the Bible, and, uh, and that somehow or another, you know, the Catholic Church had gotten off the rails uh, by going off into sacred tradition and the authority of popes and so forth. And uh, that that presumption never brought unity to the Protestant movement because they never could agree on what the Bible actually said. Hence the need 
to create their own quasi-magisterium. So within Protestantism, they say at one level, hey, we think it's the Bible alone, but it's the Bible alone as interpreted by our guy, or our girl, in the case of, of, mm. of Ellen White. Um, and uh, Because my guy has got some sort of special endowment. Well, you know, I, I sort of agree with you in broad terms about the principle. You need somebody with a special endowment, but I'd like it to be somebody established by Jesus. And Christ actually made provision for that, right? So when he made provision to hand on the faith down through the centuries, he didn't say to the apostles, go into all nations and make disciples and hand them out the Bible. He said, go into all nations, make disciples, and teach them whatever I've commanded you, Mm -hmm. and I will be with you to the end of the age, and whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Christ actually established a teaching authority within the church that he founded with a promise to, to accompany it in perpetuity forever, and with the charism of infallibility, that what the church taught on earth would be bound on earth, be bound in heaven, and gave to St. Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven, made him the rock foundation of the church's unity. So, yes, you do need interpretive authority, but it's the Pope and the bishops of the Catholic Church that have been here for 2,000 years, not Ellen White or Joseph Smith or Barton Stone or Alexander Campbell or any of these other interlopers. And uh, Martha, thank you so much for your call today. You may want to check out that website that David mentioned, uh, catholic.com. Also, our very own website, EWTN.com, also has a wealth of information for you there. Uh, Forrester is watching us on YouTube today. Forrester says, Dr. Anders, is the filioque still an important theological issue? I have trouble understanding what the consequences are on both sides of this issue other than the authority to alter the creed. Thanks, Forrester. And we, you, you may want to uh, define filioque, sure, sure, sure. too. So when, in the Latin Church, when we recite the Nicene Creed, we speak of the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Mm-hmm. And the Latin, mean, the Latin phrase that means and the Son is filioque. That means and the Son. Okay. Uh, in the Eastern Church, when they recite the Creed, they speak of the Spirit who proceeds from, from the Father, and they don't add the phrase, and the Son. Mm. And so the, the, the division over whether or not you should say, and the Son, is known as the filioque controversy. Okay. And it became very heated in the 9th century and then again in the uh, 13th and 14th centuries as a point of division between the Eastern and Western churches. Now, uh, what is the significance of the filioque, and how much of a of a fuss should we make about it? Well, the filioque was inserted into the Latin Creed to underscore the full divinity of Jesus. It was w- one more nail in the Arian coffin that Christ is also fully God, and the procession of the Spirit takes place from Father and Son. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now, the, the Eastern theologians who objected to that did so on two grounds— one, there were some who thought that it really did misstate the, the internal economy of the Blessed Trinity, that it was wrong metaphysically. Um, but I think the real issue, and this is, this is my personal judgment, and there are going to be some Eastern theologians who disagree with me, the real issue was that of authority. Does the Pope have the authority on his own to promulgate a version of the Creed without, without uh, calling an ecumenical council to validate it? Mm-hmm. And the Eastern position was always no, the Pope is... First among equals, he doesn't have this uh, this uh, this universal jurisdiction on his own authority. So it uh, it ultimately is an ecclesiological issue, I think, more even than uh, than a properly theological issue about the nature of the Godhead. Now, again, there are those who would disagree, but from from my way of looking at it, there are certainly uh, Latin saints and mystics who have contemplated uh, the nature of the Triune God. Um, 
in which the Spirit proceeds from Father and Son who have come to tremendous holiness. And there have been Eastern saints who have contemplated the nature of God and the Spirit who proceeds from the Father who have come to tremendous holiness. Uh, and uh, and I, so I, I, have a, I have a hard time myself coming to the conclusion that, uh, that the absence of, of that phrase is going to materially damage the spirituality of someone who practices in the Byzantine rite, nor its inclusion do particular harm to one that is in the Latin rite. Yeah. That's, my own, that's on my own view. Hey, Forrester, thanks for watching us today on YouTube. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Rita now in Detroit, listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Rita, what's on your mind today? Hi, thank you, uh, and God bless you, Dr. David Anders. I was wondering, uh, in Mass last week, when we were praying the Creed, it just hit me, what does it mean when we pray in the end of the Creed and the life of the world to come? Yes, thanks. Great question. So the Catholic doctrine is that when Christ returns the second time, at the end of time, uh, there will be a resurrection of the dead. Uh, the bodies of the dead, righteous and wicked, will be raised from their graves, and there will be a general judgment, and God will proclaim some to be righteous and some to be wicked. Some mm -hmm. will enter into their eternal reward and some to eternal punishment. And the heavens and earth themselves, the physical environment, will be renewed. St. Paul speaks about the physical creation groaning with expectation, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. And so the eternity that we will enjoy will be an embodied spatial temporal eternity. We will not simply be disembodied spirits with disembodied harps on disembodied clouds, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, in some ethereal realm. It'll, it'll be a material existence. Now, mm -hmm. it's going to be different. It ain't going to be like what we got now. No. And so I don't think uh, St. Paul says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, it hasn't entered into the heart of man what God has in store for those who love him. So it'll be vastly different, but there will be continuity between these physical bodies and this physical universe and the one we inherit at the return of Christ. Appreciate your call from Detroit, Rita. Thank you for checking in today. Here's an email from Gretchen. What does it mean in the Bible where it says, my father's house has many dwelling places? Yeah, great question. So, uh, you know, the obviously Jesus is speaking here eschatologically. He's speaking about life beyond death, speaking about the life to come, as we just mentioned, mm -hmm. and that uh, that that we have a share in that. That we have a share in that. Now, another interesting uh, dimension of Christ's teaching in the Gospel of John is that Christ has sheep that are not of the fold of Israel. That he would come to include the Gentile nations, which of course he did. Um, and so there's diversity in the kingdom of heaven as well. Okay. And here's one from uh, Michael watching us on YouTube. Can you please explain how the bodily resurrection will differ from the beatific vision our soul will experience in the period after our death before the bodily resurrection? Right. So what St. Thomas Aquinas says about this is that the resurrection of the body will not add anything to your, uh, your, uh, your beatitude intensively, it will add to it extensively. And so you could draw the analogy between, you know, watching your favorite black and white movie mm. and deriving as much pleasure from it as you can possibly imagine, and then suddenly they colorize it. Ah. You know, it's, a, it's, an, it's an added uh, dimension of, uh, of beatitude, but doesn't necessarily increase the intensity Michael, thanks so much for your question via YouTube. Here is Lawrence now in Raleigh, North Carolina, listening on the EWTN app. Hey, Lawrence, what's on your mind today, sir? Um, good afternoon, Dr. Anders. I wanted to ask, um, um, I wanted to get your um, 
opinion on this uh, explanation, um, well, my own explanation, uh, rather, if not an explanation answer to the question when uh, bad things happen to good people, uh, specifically uh, someone losing uh, a child to illness or or a, or being affected by natural disasters. Um, uh, I I I'm, I would say that uh, the, during the fall did not affect just man. Um, um, it also affected our bodies and creation itself, um, as we learn, as is. Uh, this is a reference to uh, um, uh, in yesterday's second reading, Romans eight. Okay, um, I actually, uh, Lawrence, I am going to jump in because we're almost out of time. Yeah, David? so I, that's the standard Catholic view, right? That and yeah. we just mentioned the passage in Romans eight where Paul says that all creation is groaning, longing, you know, with expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. So yeah, sure, the the, the fall is uh, is the explanation for the suffering of uh, of human persons. Now, you know that that has some uh, validity intellectually. I recognize that when you speak to a suffering person, well, hey, you know, Adam fell. There's no comfort in that context, right? And so you have to add the fact that Christ comes and suffers with us. That is compassion, suffering along with, and Mm -hmm. that we are called to exhibit that compassion in our response to others, not by offering them beautiful theodicies, but by offering them love. Thanks so much for your question there, uh, Lawrence. And uh, this final question from Amanda on YouTube could be the most important question of the day. How can we bring young people back to the faith? Wow, in 30 seconds. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's, that, I mean, that's the $64,000 question. But the, what the sociology shows is that young people overwhelmingly followed their parents, that parents are far and above the most important religious influence on the lives of their children. So as, as parents live the faith generously and virtuously, and that doesn't mean frenetically with lots of religious activity, right? right? right. It means that like it's a powerful force in your own life for the good. It's the good that is attractive rather than the verbiage. Walk the walk because they're always watching. That's right. They're always watching. Great question there, Amanda. Thanks for posing it on YouTube. And Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern on the radio side, and that's 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast anytime. Uh, We'll have that posted for you in the next hour or so at EWTNRadio.net, EWTNRadio.net. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. Looking forward to our next visit right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great day. God bless.